If you would like to support this show, you can do so in three ways. Number one, leave a review or you can share. Number two, you can share this episode or others like it on your social media platforms. Or number three, you can support us through Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash Theology and Ross. Support the show for as little as five bucks a month. All the info is in the show notes. My guest today needs no introduction uh, because he's been on the podcast many, many times. He is my best friend, Dr. Joey Dodson, professor of biblical studies at Denver Seminary, author of several books. Again, all the info is in the show notes. So please welcome back to the show for the umpteenth time, Joey Dodson. Hey, Joey. Welcome back for the 18th time to Theology in the Raw. <laughs> Got the buddy pass. Do you, do you listen to Joe Rogan? I forget. Sometimes? I do. Yes. You like the Joey yeah, Diaz. You like the Joey Diaz of uh, Theology in the Raw. I feel like every month he's got <laughs> Joey Diaz on. Like, <laughs> Actually, I'm more intimidated this time than ever before. You, you've got me uh, playing with LeBron, Jordan, oh, and Pippen. man. We so had some good ones, man. I feel like man. Woody Harrelson's I yeah, like Woody Harrelson's on White Men Can't Jump. You know? <laughs> My name's not Jump. It's loyal. So, Craig Blomberg, Lynn Doig, Michael Bird. I'm not nearly as brilliant as Craig and Lynn and not nearly uh, as witty and can't rap as well as Michael Bird. What? Does he rap? He doesn't rap, does he? He, he raps Hamilton. Have you not heard him do Hamilton? <laughs> he kills it. You need When you have him on, you need to get him to rap I it. I need to have so, him back he's on. He's very proud of it as well. Nice. Well, uh, I just found out from you offline. Congratulations are in order. You are now the Craig L. Blomberg Professor of. Am I getting this right? Of New Testament or chair Chair of New Testament. Chair of New Testament. The Craig L. Blomberg Chair of New Testament. Yeah, and Craig Blomberg's L stands for Leonard, by the way. Oh, Leonard. Craig so if L. you ever Blomberg. see Craig, you can call him Lenny. Yeah. So I would think, but thanks so much. It's, it, I'm really honored. And it's one of those things where God is just doing immeasurably more than I could ask for or imagine. My first uh, book on Paul that I think I read was his commentary on first Corinthians and NIV application commentary. Oh, yeah. And then my first class that I taught, uh, I used his uh, Matthew commentary in the new American commentary series wow. when I taught uh, high school. So yeah, to be able to step into this oh, is just an example of how um, God chooses the foolish and the weak. I mean, for those who don't know, yeah, Craig Lomberg, I mean, renowned New Testament evangelical New Testament scholar who's, gosh, for a few decades has been kind of the leading scholar in the, in the Gospels and, um, yeah, Corinthians and other. I mean, the guy, guy touches on a lot of different areas of the New Testament. It's really a, just a sweet guy, too. I've met him a couple of times. It's just mm-hmm. like I, I often say, he's a Christian first scholar, second, it seems like, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, what an honor, man. He's a king of puns as well. Is he? Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> let's dive into the Christmas story. Uh, you're going to help us unpack some of the the background stuff that if you just read the Bible, you're not going to notice, really. You have to do a little bit of work. But once you do a little bit of work, man, you just unearth some fascinating background material. And, you know, background, it helps us to read the Bible in its context, you know? Um, um, it would be like... It'd be like reading. I mean, this is off the top of my head, so maybe I should not do this. But it's theology in the raw. So it'd be like reading the the biography <laughs> of a a Jew living in Germany in 1947 or something, with no awareness of Hitler or the Nazi regime or something like that. Like, 
Oh, it's a cool story. It's like, well, no, no, here, this is this is huge. Look at the background and see kind of the broader context in which the story is happening. And same thing, I mean, both you and I love to dig into the background, but man, you, you're you able to fill out the New Testament in such an engaging way. So tell us, how does the background, what are some aspects of the background help us to read the Christmas story in 3D, in 3D through a 3D lens? Yeah, sure. Let me make two pre-qualifications. Uh, one is that it's not like New Testament backgrounds in, in the sense that we have these books in the background. It's more like New Testament context. Um, th- okay. This background is alive and well. They're contemporaneous. Mm-hmm. They're walking on stage. And so sometimes when we hear background, we have this picture of like a backdrop uh, that okay. is not dynamic, but really kind of New Testament context. And so what I enjoy is the intersection of Second Temple Judaism, Greco-Roman literature, and early church uh, Christianity uh, and see almost that that common intersection and interpenetration between those three. And so having those two qualifications, I think, helps us even understand that it's not just like this background, but instead right. uh, it is alive and well during the, the time. And so yeah, the it's word, almost like uh, my granddaughter walking past us while we're talking. She's not in the background, but she's right here. Like the, the word background sounds like, oh, and by the way, this is also happening while the New Testament is being written. And that's yeah, absolutely dead not. Dead and yeah. static. Yeah, yeah. Right. Good. Well, yeah. What do you, uh, yeah, what do you want so, to talk about? Yeah. Along, along that roundabout, I mean, we could go down the uh, Jewish context um, that, that intersects, or we could look at the Greco-Roman, um, although, of course, those aren't uh, hard and fast. Um, um, or we can look at some of the early church um, mm-hmm. parallels to the empathy narrative. So uh, do you have one of those that you want to jump let's into start, first? Why don't we start with I'm Greco-Roman? Let's, let's start with the Gentile okay. background. Yeah. Because some people don't think yeah, that there's any kind good. of parallels here, you know? Right, good. But one thing that we see in uh, Matthew and Luke, the two emphasis narratives, is the emphasis of Jesus being the Son of God. And even that term, Son of God, is going to make uh, the listeners, in light of that New Testament context, uh, think of Augustus Caesar. Augustus Caesar, uh, way before uh, the birth of Christ, was known as the Son of God. It was on their coins um, all around. And uh, he has a birth narrative that uh, starts out actually with this heavenly sign. This is general heavenly sign. Uh, that there is going to be the savior of Rome that is going to be born. And so the the, the sage uh, tells this to the Senate. Uh, the Senate is vexed. They're greatly disturbed. And so what the Senate does is they issue a decree that there will be no more babies born in Rome uh, during this year. Obviously, that doesn't work out. And so uh, meanwhile, back at the ranch, uh, the story, Sustonius is one who tells us the story. But meanwhile, back at the ranch, um, uh, there's a woman named Mattia, and uh, she is a priestess of Apollo. And uh, one night she falls asleep and Apollo uh, turns on some Marvin Gaye and uh, comes and uh, in the form of a serpent and Netflixes and chills, if, if, that's, if we make that into a verb, uh, with Atia. And uh, about the same time, Octavian, Augustus' dad, uh, he has this vision uh, of uh, his wife uh, being pregnant. Uh, and uh, she is giving birth to the son. And then in another dream, he has a vision of this son uh, who is standing uh, by the right side of Jupiter, Optimus, Maximus. Uh, sounds like a transformer more than meets the but but um and and uh, Jupiter, Maximus, uh, Optimus, Maximus gives uh, Augustus his thunderbolt, um, his lightning bolt. He gives him his scepter, uh, and uh, he is uh, has a, a crown on that has sunbeams that are coming out of it. Uh, he has he's on a chariot pulled by white horses, twelve white horses that are, are whiter than white. And uh, and so Atia also has a dream uh, that she is pregnant um, by uh, the god Apollo, 
And uh, in her dream, she is caught up into the stars as well. And uh, she has one foot on the ground and one foot on the sea. And uh, she uh, has this heavenly vision. And so uh, at this point, uh, Augustus is born uh, and you have all these visions that are happening around him. And uh, so, yeah, we we can kind of see immediately some of the parallels that uh, the original audience of Matthew and Luke would have heard uh, with respect to Jesus and Augustus Caesar. There's no virgin virgin birth, is there, in that story? And do we have any examples of a virgin birth yeah. myth in ancient world? Or? Yeah, not really. Um, the, the closest that we get uh, is, I think, in the Jewish uh, world with Philo. Speaking of Philo, by the way, you had Con Campbell on, and you were talking about how uh, we used to meet with Pete Williams and translate uh, On the Giants. <laughs> yeah, so there, I have a bone to pick with you. There, there are times where I would show up and neither you nor Mark uh, would show up, and I would just be like one-on-one <laughs> with Pete Williams to translate Philo. It was like interrogation, like oh, one, light, one light bulb, and you know, he was, there was no good cop, and he just drilled me. So, there was no uh, good cop. But, but anyway, cop. Philo, yeah. not <laughs> on the Giants, uh, he talks about um, Moses. And we can come and talk about Moses in a moment as well, because Moses is going to also be connected to that Lagos. He's also going to have uh, this divinity that's connected to him and a very similar infancy story to what we see in Matthew. Uh, but uh, with Moses, uh, Moses doesn't have a virgin birth. Uh, but according to Philo, uh, this is uh, on, the, on the cherubim, uh, Moses and Zipporah uh, have, uh, Zipporah gets pregnant without any quote unquote, moral agency. And oh. so we don't, we're not sure if hmm. Philo is speaking allegorically as he does, but he talks about how this is, is a mystery. And so there is a connection possibly with that. Okay. Uh, but uh, with uh, Atia, uh, who is, uh, she, she, she was already married, so she wasn't a virgin. Uh, you have the story of Hercules. I have to bring in Hercules, right? Uh, where uh, it's not Apollo, but it's Zeus who looks down and uh, Hercules' mom is uh, gone away. And so he decides to dress up and pretend to be Hercules's dad. And so he goes down and uh, hooks up with her um, as a serpent as well. So if you find your spouse in the bed with a serpent, um, it's probably a God. And uh, so uh, he, and and he, and anyway, so uh, sorry, no, that's Alexander the Great. I'm getting, I'm getting my stories uh, crossed. Uh, uh, Zeus comes down looking like uh, Hercules's dad he stops the stars in heaven. He stops the, the the sun from shining so that he could have all of his pleasure. And so um, they party all night, all night long. Uh, and then what happens is that uh, she gets pregnant, not only with Her- Hercules, but also with um, Hercules's other dad. And so there's twins that are born. And so she gives birth to twins, one who is the son of Zeus. The other is going to be the son of uh, Hercules's uh, biological dad. Wow. Uh, and so one comes out looking like Preston Sprinkle, the other one comes out looking like Post Malone. <laughs> Post Malone. Uh, but but again, that's not they're not they're not virgins. And so okay. if we go down the early Christian uh, line, uh, they're going to see that this is one of the things that separates uh, the Christian story from the Greco-Roman and Jewish parallels. And so in like the Proto Evangelion of James, the Ascension of Isaiah, uh, both of those are going to go to great lengths to underscore. Uh, Mary's virginity. Okay. Um, and so the, yeah, you want to, you want a question about well, that? Or well, you want to talk so, about that so more? So that is that because, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking historically or literarily here. Um, is that because they're, they're, they're aware of all these other birth narratives that have a lot of immorality wrapped up into them. So is it trying to distance this story? Because there's so many, com- yeah, I think, I, I, okay. Cause there's a lot of parallels, I, I right? Think it's I mean, compounded. The, the parallels, it sounds parallels. very much like the birth of Augustus, but then, 
it's not wrapped up in all that immoral Roman stuff is, is kind of what's going on here. That's right. Okay. Yeah. You don't just see the Christians doing that, but you also see uh, the Greco-Roman philosophers kind of moving away from that as well. And so Plutarch talks about how Plato is the son of God. Um, and the huh. it's not um, the seed of God that goes into Plato's mom, uh, but instead uh, it is uh, the spirit of God that goes into. And so uh, the, the, uh, the dunamis uh, of God's pneuma is what uh, impregnates uh, Plato's mom. And so you even have uh, Greco Roman philosophers. Yeah, which is the same two terms that we see in Luke's gospel kind of overshadowing her. Um, and, and one text, uh, Zeus or Jupiter, and, and Jupiter is much more stoic than Zeus. If, if you know, they're the same guy, but uh, the, yeah. the Romans make him less promiscuous. But in, I think it's Alexander the Great story, uh, he, uh, Zeus just like sends a lightning bolt to hit uh, Alexander the Great's mom's uh, uh, womb. And so it's, it's a lightning bolt that impregnate, impregnates her. Uh, but yeah, I do think that's one thing that the early Christians are going to separate. Um, and so in the Proto-Euangelion of James, uh, the, the Salome says, I will not believe that this child is virgin birth unless I uh, thrust my hands into uh, the womb to see, uh, which is, has parallels with what we see in uh, the Gospel of John uh, with respect to Thomas. And so she goes and she does it. And when she uh, sticks her hand, uh, when she does the, the check, uh, she, her, her hand uh, starts melting, like uh, burns off because she didn't believe. And, uh, and then she confesses and says, no, I believe in the virgin birth, and she gets her hand back. Uh, so you see early Christians later on wanting to underscore that. In the Ascension of Isaiah, it has a story of um, after she gives birth. And, and it's funny because even the birth that Mary gives in these stories is almost like, there's a baby. There, there's no pain. It just kind of looks, and, and there's the baby there. And it says that um, in the Ascension of, of Isaiah that um, at that point, her vagina was restored uh, to the days of her youth. Huh. And so she has like this biological anatomical uh, restoration of uh, her vagina in that um, just uh, again, yeah. underline her. Um, Real quick, these books are second, third century Christian books, right? The proto Evangelion of James and then Ascension of Isaiah. I know that one's had mm-hmm. some redaction done to it, I think. I think it started as a Jewish work or Christians took it over. But we're talking about like second century yeah. Christian works that are kind of retelling the birth narrative. Um, that's Which, right. And so it's interesting to hear them because we see what they want to highlight um, and what to um, add on to. So it's almost like the prequels of Star Wars, although that's some, um, those are terrible. Uh, they, these kind of give you, in a sense, the prequel and tell us some of the stories that we weren't familiar with. Um, they seem to be like gynecologists almost. They're really fascinated with Mary's vagina. Like, <laughs> but both those stories, they're like one guy's, when girls reaching mm, up in the Yeah, kind of like the like, earliest. Wow. Yeah. Wow, yeah, I wouldn't picture the I mean, early again, church. It's so odd. Yeah, I wouldn't picture the early church to be so explicit with sexual anatomy. Um, mm. So let's go back to the parallels. So you have Caesar Augustus. You have Luke, who's very steeped mm. in the Greco-Roman world. Unlike maybe unlike Matthew, mm. you might need to agree or disagree on that. I don't know. I mean, Matthew's much more Jewish, but Luke is right into Theophilus. He's very much mm. has a lot of. Um, I mean, especially in the Book of Acts, right? I mean, a lot of. He's very politically aware. Like Luke's very mm-hmm. aware of these birth stories that you're talking about with Augustus and and so yeah. on. Okay. So, the so, way, so think yeah. about Luke. In that same story that I was just telling you, uh, after um, Augustus is born, the son of God, you have these prophets that come and they see the baby and 
they declare that he is a savior of Rome, um, that he is the son of God. So Cicero is one of those in the story. Uh, but then immediately it like fast forwards uh, to uh, when Augustus is a, is a baby and his nurse lays him down and she looks back and he's gone and she can't find him. And so they search and search and search because um, the, the son of God has disappeared. And then finally they find him in a high tower uh, looking at the east, uh, watching the sun rise, the rising sun. And so if you remember in Luke's gospel, he fast forwards from the infant narrative, uh, the infancy narrative to the story of Jesus um, yeah. getting lost um, at the temple. All right. So real quick, son of God, is that a divine title or a royal title or both? Because when it's used of Augustus, yes. Because <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, th- well, I think Christians mm-hmm. automatically, well, Jesus is God. Look, he's called the son of God. It's like, well, so is, so is David. Mm-hmm. So is Israel as a nation, you know? So just the, the title mm-hmm. itself doesn't have to mean divinity. Um, but you're saying in the, in the story of Augustus, because he was later divinized, right? <laughs> Mm-hmm. viewed as being divine. Um, so son of God is not just a royal title for Augustus. It's both royal and divine. That's right. Yeah. So remember Julius Caesar, he has an apotheosis um, yeah. and uh, Caesar adopts Augustus. And so he is the son of God. He is the son of Caesar along those lines. Uh, in contrast to the Eastern Kings, uh, the Roman Kings didn't usually uh, proclaim divinity, uh, but uh, we do see um, Alexander the Great does a little bit of that, if you remember. Um, and uh, and then later on, you're going to have this uh, story that's, again, going to say that um, his divinity wasn't this adoption later on in his life or even at the, the death of his life. And so uh, when the Senate comes together to say that Augustus is the son of God, uh, they are just giving a rubber stamp on what everyone believed. And so there were different um, – some believe that the, the emperor himself was a god, and they would worship that in the imperial cult, um, maybe similar to what we see in Revelation uh, with the six 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 and stuff, but um, others would worship uh, the the genus, um, the, the 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 spirit of the emperor. Um, that was kind of the anointing that was upon him. But okay. yeah, so 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 Augustus help us, is the one who was known as the son of God. Let's go back and just give us a, a summary of Luke one and two. What's Luke trying to tell us here by the language that's being used by how he's retelling the story in light of all this? Like, what should we walk away with? Yeah. Well, it gets us back into uh, one of the conversations that we had before with the imperial critical discussion. Um, as you know, in Luke and Acts, and especially in Acts, this is one of those great uh, questions. What is the relationship of the church to the empire? Right. And you do have um, uh, in Thessaloniki, they're talking about um, how Paul is preaching another gospel. Um, and uh, Sorry, he's preaching another king besides Caesar. Yeah. And so I think uh, if, if we can kind of read Luke and Acts together, that there is this discussion that uh, now there's the true savior um, not just of Rome, but the, the savior of the world that's connected. And uh, yet, I mean, the Romans were so great at propaganda. So it's not like I'm pulling out this story that no one would not have heard. It was on their coins. Uh, they had it in the on the stage. Uh, you know, it, it was all around. There, there was probably no one in history as great at propaganda um, besides the, the Nazis, perhaps. And so these these stories were all around. And so as soon as you hear uh, the, the, the term son of God, as soon as you uh, hear the, the story of the angel appearing and saying that this is going to be uh, the, the son of God and that he's going to be the savior of the world, these type of terms are going to bring uh, this type of picture that uh, there, there's a new Caesar in town. He is the, he is the real mm. Caesar. So the birth of Jesus in Luke 2 is a political statement, you're saying? I mean, this is... I think so, yeah. So I think when we look at... Um, 
the Christmas from this vantage point, we remember we realized that the Christmas story is a political story, and uh, it is even either Augustus Caesar, he's like dust that I'm just going to knock off of my shoulder, um, or it could be um, kind of really in the face of that, similar to what we see, more subtle than Revelation chapter 12, but still kind of sticking mm-hmm. it to Caesar. And is that why I've always wondered, like in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, like why give the seemingly insignificant details about, you know, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census would be taken. The fir- and this is the first census while Quirinius was governor of Syria. It's like, who the heck cares? Mm-hmm. Like, well, who's Quirinius? <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> he, he's not in any yeah. nativity. Like this isn't, but by framing mm-hmm. the birth of this new king, the ultimate king, the true king, against mm-hmm. the backdrop of these other human rulers. You're, I mean, this is deliberate. Luke mm-hmm. is... Like the story wouldn't read the same from Luke's perspective if he didn't mention Augustus and Quirinius. Was that and even the mm-hmm. census and this yeah. this subordination and they're they're taxing the Jewish people and they're commanded mm-hmm. to go here, go like they're very much there's there's the the I mean the empire is empiring, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, which mm-hmm. drives yeah. Joseph and Mary to to Bethlehem. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like uh, us saying today, if uh, we were retelling the the Christmas story that uh, the angel Gabriel said to Mary, and he will give you life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You know, Uh, and so we, a a thousand years from now, people may not make that connection. But for us, we're like, well, wow, this is connected to the manifest destiny um, of America. The other day, I was uh, in Oregon, and um, I saw a guy with a New York Yankees hat on. As you know, I'm a Yankees fan. I was like, hey, you know, a Yankees fan. And he's like, no, 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 I'm not a Yankees fan. I'm like, what do you mean? And he was like, uh, it doesn't stand for New York. I'm like, well, excuse me, I think it does. I'm, I'm kind of a, a big Yankee fan. He's like, no, 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 uh, I am uh, Native American and I'm from the Yakima Nation. And so I wear this hat not to stand for the New York Yankees, but instead oh, wow. for my tribe. And so it was really amazing that uh, he would, I mean, this is a a walking uh, example of uh, someone who is using the same terminology, the same hat um, that uh, represents U.S. um, all around the world. No matter what you think about the Yankees, uh, everywhere you go, when people think of the U.S., they think of uh, the Yankees, um, not the Dodgers. Uh, But but anyway, yeah, yeah. um, yeah, but but here's a guy that uh, was wearing it subversively. Uh, and so I think kind of some of these same stories that uh, the early Christians accommodating and emphasizing about the, the historicity of Jesus Christ is showing that uh, they are turning the world upside down to go back to that passage in Acts. It would, I mean, can it, this is going to be lame and not totally accurate, but like, it'd be like saying, you know, in the, in the, it came about in those days, a decree went out from Donald Trump that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. First census taken while Biden was, or I don't know. I mean, I'm just, trying to level the playing field, but yeah, these are, these right. are it, it, is it too much to say that, that in the very birth story, Luke is trying to cultivate a Christian identity around the birth of their savior that has, that's intrinsically, mm-hmm. I mean, counter imperial would be very easy to say. I'm trying to think of a more parallel, a modern mm-hmm. parallel without going too far. Clearly it's counter imperial. Clearly yeah. it's, these dudes think they're ruling the world, but they're not. This little baby born yeah. in this feeding trough is. Well, yeah, I, I don't know if it's clearly. It could be supra-imperial, where um, our 
our nobility is so much greater than Rome. It's not that we're anti-Rome, but just that we're so much greater than Rome. And uh, the the king of the universe, uh, the one who's at the right hand of God, the father, who has not the lightning bolt, um, but however, our ever-present help in time of trouble um, is the one who's connected to this ragtag, motley crew, uh, early um, Jews made up of women and slaves and Ethiopian eunuchs. And and so it it does connect uh, this small group of people to say, hey, you are royal. Um, and uh, it is countercultural, yeah. uh, and so your king is greater than Rome's king. Well, that, on that last point, I mean, part of the Christian identity is to embody a a, a social order, an economic order that is that is very different from the empire. I mean, that to me seems so intentional right. by mm-hmm. including all the people yeah. that Rome would not have elevated in terms of their social status, which mm-hmm. we see in the. Um, I mean, obviously with the shepherds, right? I mean, they were seen as lowly mm-hmm. people. They're the ones That's who come right. and greet yeah. the king. Um, uh, I'm t- trying to think Matthew. Well, well, that would be more Jewish. So that might take us in a, a different direction, which we, we, need, we do, do need to go to. But here you have mm-hmm. foreigners from Babylon, these Gentiles coming, and they're the ones who are, um, mm-hmm. while all Jerusalem, including Herod the Great, half Jew or whatever, is upset, here's these Gentiles coming yeah. to celebrate the king. Um. Mm-hmm. Well, let, yeah, let's go to the Jewish because so that's a lot of the Greco-Roman background. This kind of like counter yeah. imperial. What's going on? And this might take us to mm-hmm. Matthew in terms of Jewish parallels to this birth narrative. Sure. Yeah. So I mean, if we look at Luke and the, the more Greco-Roman, I don't want to fall into the trap of uh, having this Jewish Greco-Roman divide because obviously they are hand in glove, and we need to get rid of that divide. So, okay. um, so again, with that pre-qualification. But from a from a Luke's perspective, from more of an empire perspective, it's going to be make Rome great again. Um, and so Jesus Christ is the one who's coming to make uh, the world, the oikomenoi, um, great, the oikomenos uh, great again. Uh, now, if we go to Matthew, it's going to be make Israel great again, uh, okay. if you will, to bring in your Trump-Biden uh, discussion earlier. And so uh, just like we have parallels with Augustus Caesar, uh, we also have contemporaneous uh, parallels uh, with Matthew's gospel. And one of the best places that we see that is in Josephus, um, Flavius Josephus. I like to refer to him as Flava Flav, but uh, Flavius <laughs> uh, in his book, Antiquities. Now what Flavius Josephus is trying to do is maybe similar to what we see with uh, Luke's uh, story of Luke and Acts and that he's trying to convince the Romans um, who have a tendency towards anti-Semitism uh, that uh, the, the Jews have noble, noble roots uh, and uh, they're, they're people to be honored, not people to, to be hated. And so Josephus uh, in Antiquities goes back and he tells the story. And Book 9 of Antiquities, uh, he tells the story of this guy named Moses. Um, and so there was a Pharaoh and um, one of the sages, one of the astrologers, one of the magi of Pharaoh came to Pharaoh and said, hey, I've just seen this portent. I've just seen this sign uh, that there is a son who is going to be born uh, among the Hebrews, who is going to lay Egypt low, and who is going to deliver Israel from bondage. You can imagine that. Real quick, uh, go ahead. Josephus mm-hmm. normally just kind of, when he's talking about biblical stories, he largely follows the biblical narrative with some interjection. But this, mm-hmm. what you're talking about here is not in the Bible, right? This isn't in Exodus. Yeah, so if you remember in Exodus uh, 2, the reason that uh, Pharaoh wants to kill the babies is because he's afraid that uh, they are becoming too numerous and that they're going to overthrow the you know uh, the revolt. Um, can you hear the people sing? Uh, and so that's why he does it. But for Jose- Josephus, it's because 
there is uh, this child that's going to be born, this hero that is going to rescue Israel, that's going to deliver Israel from their bondage. Yeah, so I think it's interesting. Uh, And it may not be Josephus that has, this may not be uh, unique to Josephus. My daughter, Maddie May, uh, sent me uh, a story out of some midrash uh, from uh, the story of Moses this past semester. And in this story, uh, you have, uh, again, very similar type of idea. Pharaoh's trying to kill the baby, the baby boys, because uh, uh, because one is going to be born that's going to be a savior. And so what Moses' dad does before Moses is, uh, is there is that he sends Moses' mom away silently, and he divorces her really? because he doesn't want to have a baby with her because he doesn't want the, the child to be thrown into the Nile. And so he sends her away. He divorces her. But Miriam had already been born. And so Miriam stands up to uh, Moses' future dad um, and says, no, this, this is not right. and You don't need to do this. And so he remarries uh, uh, Yochebed, um, the, the, the glory of the Lord. So he remarries her. She gets pregnant uh, at this point. And uh, so, so, again, very similar to what we have, Joseph being a righteous man who uh, wants to send Mary away. And then he's rebuked by the angel. Uh, but um, and, and in, in Josephus' story, he's also going to have uh, the, the Lord God appear to Moses in a dream, if you want to go back to that. But anyway, there's some Midrash stories that are very similar. Miriam even says something very similar uh, in uh, the Sita to what we have in Matthew. His name will be Jesus because he will save Israel from their sins. Uh, she says that he will save Israel. Uh, I think it's from bondage. He will deliver. But um, very, very similar type proclamation that we have with Gabriel and Miriam in that Midrash. When do we date that Midrash? Is that, from the, is that after the New Testament? Yeah, after the New Testament. And Josephus is also going to be after the New Testament. Right. Um, so it gets but, into that question, you know, which came first. But again, just because it wasn't written down doesn't mean it right. wasn't already in circulation because we have to say the same thing about the Gospels. Well, neither, the Gospels were written decades yeah, after. Yeah, yeah. I mean, neither Josephus nor the author of the Midrash are like reading the New Testament. I mean, Josephus probably wasn't even available yet, but even then he's not going to be reading this Christian literature. So this does, I mean, right. Yeah. It seems better to assume that these are independent yeah. traditions. Um, the one that goes into Matthew and Luke and the one that goes into these Jewish stories so that, well, what do we make of this for somebody listening and saying, well, what does this mean? Like, okay. Yeah. These sound do, very do similar. Mean, a lot of similar things. Story? What's that? Do we finish the story out? So you yes, can yeah, see sorry, the rest of similarities yeah, before yeah. we talk about significance. Yeah. Well, no, I, I got onto a, a rabbit trail talking about the Midrash. So back from the Midrash uh, to Josephus, so um, at this point, uh, they begin to throw all of the, the baby boys uh, into the Nile. Uh, there's weeping. There's this great tragedy. Uh, jo- uh, Moses' dad doesn't know what he's going to do. So he's praying to God. And God appears to him in a dream and says, hey, don't worry. I am watching over Israel. And uh, this son is going to be the savior of Israel. And uh, I'm going to give him an everlasting glory, not just uh, for himself, uh, and not just for Israel, but also for the nations, uh, for those who do not know him. And so you have this everlasting glory forever type of idea. Um, Moses is born, and when he is born, uh, he is Kitov. Uh, so th- this word Tov in uh, Exodus 2 takes us back to Genesis chapter 1. But uh, the, the the Jewish people didn't know what to do with that Tov. What, what does that mean that he was Tov? Uh, some said that he was born already circumcised. Some translated uh, the Tov. It's almost like our Mago Day conversation. What does it mean that we're in the image of God? Uh, what does it mean that he's Tov? Yeah. So some say that he was born already circumcised because we don't have no any mention of him being circumcised. Some say that he was born already with the, 
spiritual gift of prophecy. Uh, so he had this penchant towards prophecy. Uh, but all of those accounts say that uh, when he was born, the entire house uh, was fi- was filled with light. Um, and even uh, some say that when Pharaoh's daughter opened up the to- the basket, uh, it was full of the Shekinah glory of God. And yeah. so this brightness um, that connects us later on uh, to him being so shiny. But uh, yes, yeah, so, so those are kind of those stories that we have that, uh, again, we see connections with, uh, especially Matthew's account. Well, and Matthew has this, like Jesus is the better Moses, right? Kind of theme mm-hmm. to it. Mm-hmm. And you see it, you see it in, in Luke as well. Um, but we, you know, we all know about, you know, Jesus is the, the, the new Adam, the second Adam, obviously from Paul, but even like the new Israel mm-hmm. from going into the, the desert mm-hmm. and, and, and succeeding where Israel failed in the desert, 40 days, 40 years. Um, but you also have a, a, a fairly decent Jesus is the new Moses leading his people out of bondage, being the Passover lamb and so on, right? Is that is that pretty prominent in Matthew in particular, that the Jesus and Moses thing? Very much so. I would say more so in Matthew than anywhere else. Um, as you mentioned, we do have it in Luke. We have it in Acts. Uh, Hebrews is going to bring it out quite a bit as well. Right, you know, yeah. Moses is great. He's a servant in the house, but Jesus, he owns the house, right? Um, uh, but uh, in, in Matthew, it, you have this typology that continues just to go on and on and on in it. And it goes back actually to, to Deuteronomy 15, uh, where uh, Moses is preaching and he says, hey, one day God's going to raise up a prophet like me and he'll speak the very words of God. 18, I think it's and, 18. And God's like, 18, Seven, yeah, 18, 17, 15, I think, 18, 18, 18, 18, 18 is the verse. 18, yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, you're the Old Testament guy here, man. Uh, yeah, I think it's... Uh, yeah, 18 verse 15, I think is where it starts. Yeah. And then God's like, Hey, did you hear what my boy said? Did you hear what my boy said? One day I'm going to raise up a prophet like him and he's going to speak the very words of God. And if you don't listen to him, then I'm going to open up a can of whoop wrath upon him. Uh, and so we, we have this anticipation, this prophet like Moses. Um, and so we can look at that Flavius Josephus uh, story and those connections, but we can just go back from the, the story of Matthew. Uh, where does Joseph flee? Uh, he flees to Egypt. Uh, who else grew up in Egypt? Moses. That was his playground where he spent most of his days. Um, and then uh, the the angel appears to uh, Joseph again and says, hey, you can go back because those who are trying to kill you, um, they have died. That's actually an exact quotation that we don't see in our uh, New Testament uh, text, but it goes back to Exodus 4 where Moses says to Zipporah, we can go back because the Lord told me oh. that those who are trying to take my life have died. So you have that connection. Uh, Matthew fast forwards to the baptism. Uh, and uh, we have in the story Jesus go- uh, Moses going through the Red Sea, and it sounds like a stretch, but in First Corinthians ten, Moses, uh, sorry, Paul has already made the connection between the Red Sea and baptism. Uh, after the baptism, Jesus goes into the wilderness. He's there for forty days. Uh, who was in the wilderness? Moses was in the wilderness for forty years. While he's in the wilderness, he's uh, quoting scripture. He could quote Psalms. He could quote Isaiah. He could quote anybody he wants to. But three times Jesus quotes scripture. Three times it's Moses, 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 Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy. After that, he calls his disciples. He has 12 disciples. Moses has the 12 tribes of Israel. He goes on to the Mount, uh, the, the Sermon on the Mount, and he gives that, um, okay, where Jesus goes to the mountain. So you have Matthew 5 through 7, uh, where Jesus gives a new law, which, of course, is parallel with what we see with Moses. Uh, in Matthew's gospel, he takes uh, the, the, the miracles of Jesus, the healing miracles of Jesus, and he puts them in chapters 8 through 10. Uh, and there are 10 of them, uh, which seem to be a connection with uh, the 10 plagues, uh, but up Jesus is giving these 10 miracles. Uh, you have Jesus going onto the mountain of transfiguration there. His face gets shiny, um, which reminds us of Moses being shiny in Exodus, uh, 34. Uh, and by the way, who's standing up there with uh, Jesus, 
Moses yeah. is on the mountain with him. And it's Moses and Elijah. Mark actually switches those two. Mark says it's Elijah and Moses. And if Matthew's drawing on Mark, then he intentionally switches it to put Moses first. Uh, but then when Jesus is coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, oh, well, let me kind of back up. The Lord God said, uh, God the Father says to Jesus, um, what well, says to Peter and the people around uh, after the Shekinah glory kind of fills that place, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Uh, if you remember when uh, Moses is on the mountain in chapter in Exodus 34, uh, God says, you know what? I'm going to send my messenger ahead of you and he will prepare the way. Are you yeah. uh, lost you again? No, you're good. I can I can hear you. You're freezing up on me. Okay. okay. Yeah. Good. Uh, but anyway, Moses is like, no, no, no. We don't want the promised land without your presence. And God's like, I can't go. I'll kill you guys all. And Moses is like, please. And God says, well, because I have favor with you, Moses, I will go with you. And uh, mm-hmm. so God goes with him because he has, he's well pleased. Uh, it's not the same Greek word, but it's in that same semantic range yeah. of that. But Jesus comes down from the mountain. If you remember, he's angry because the disciples don't have enough faith. And he says, how long do I have to be with you, you wicked and crooked generation? Uh, which is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 32, echoing back to Exodus 32, on and on and on it goes. Um, Mount, uh, the, Matthew ends with the Great Commission on a mountain, sending uh, the disciples to the nations, which is how uh, the Pentateuch ends as well, with Moses sending Joshua into the nations. Oof. And so, yeah, so Matthew for, is going to unpack it. I mean, I'm just scratching the surface of Jesus as the new Moses. encourage my audience to hit pause, go back 10 minutes and listen to that probably four or five times to get it all. So the, the one that I was wanted to, I don't want to stop you, but the, the, it is interesting that you have the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7, in, in terms of mapping these stories upon each other, that mirrors Sinai, right? So that Jesus is giving kind of the new law, which is kind of clearly what he's doing. He keeps mm-hmm. saying, you have heard this, but I'm telling you this. Um, what is the purpose of this? Why is Matthew... Um, it seems to be obvious. I mean, if if you had given one or two parallels, people could say, well, I don't know, is that intentional? But there's way too many numerical similarities, content of story similarities and purpose story, purpose similarities. So it does seem to, I think we can agree that Matthew clearly has an eye on Moses and the Exodus story. What, uh, what's our, what's our takeaway from this? Yeah, well, there, there are numerous takeaways. Uh, one is that Jesus is that fulfillment um, of the, the the promised prophet of Moses. And so he's the one who doesn't speak. If you remember, Matthew, it's divided up into five different uh, speaking sections. Moses has the, the five books of Moses. And so the Sermon on the Mount is the first of that. And each one of those five teaching uh, sections ends with the people were amazed. They were like, wow, because he didn't speak like the... Uh, scribes, but he spoke with one who spoke with authority, like the very words of God. And so um, I think if we go back and tap into Deuteronomy 18, uh, where God uh, tells the people, hey, when this prophet comes, you better listen to him. Uh. So listen to my prophet, uh, which again goes back to the transfiguration. This is why God, I mean, this is may- maybe one of the most climatic events in all of biblical and all of history. Yeah. Uh, you have Moses, you have Elijah, you have Jesus, you have uh, Peter, you have John, you have James, all on top of the mountain, the God, the Father. And what does he say at this moment? Hey, listen to my son, yeah. listen to him. You know, and so I, I think uh, I think that's one thing that we can uh, unpack here is that Jesus, w- the words that he is teaching, uh, these aren't the words of man. These are the words of God. He is that prophet who is speaking the very words of God. And we need to not just hear his words, but to put them into practice. So I think yeah. maybe the end of Matthew chapter seven is giving us that application of okay. Jesus as this prophet of 
into, into a Jewish audience that needs to be convinced a Jewish audience that is running around saying we're of Moses, we're of Moses. You know, you're, you know, you're, we're disciples of Moses. You're born of your father, the devil or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, Like that kind of audience who's really stuck on this Moses thing might need to, it'd be very impactful for, for Matthew to tell a story in a way that says, here's somebody who's better than Moses. And even in Luke's gospel, the transfiguration, it says that uh, Luke says that he was, that Jesus was talking to them, Moses and Elijah, about his, and the Greek word is exodus. <laughs> I think it's only used twice. Yeah, I think. that's right. Fact check mm-hmm. me on that. But I think the yeah. other time the Greek word is used in the New, in the New Testament is referring mm-hmm. to the literal exodus, I think in the book of Acts or something. Um, that's right. Yeah, so, Jude, Jude, I think. Oh, maybe Jude. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow, man. Um, yeah, and you know, it's not just in Matthew, it's not just in Luke, but uh, John, he ends his prologue in John chapter one with this comparison with Moses and Jesus. Um, and then we have it in Paul, Paul in First Corinthians, Second Corinthians chapter three, yeah. uh, he talks about the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. And that's to a predominantly Gentile audience, um, if not a, a hmm. solely Gentile audience. Uh, so yeah, you, I, I think we have it from Matthew through Revelation, this picture of Jesus as this new Moses a Gentile audience that might've been converted to Judaism before, right. They might've been um, proselytes. And if they were, they were probably discipled in these mm-hmm. themes so that even their previous Jewishness, if, if they, if there was such a thing, you know, might've had a strong Moses mm-hmm. kind of theology in it, which, wow, dude, so much to chew on. Let's go back to the, um, the Christmas story then. So, in light of all that, um, how should we like if it, just kind of a broad overview? Like, if somebody say somebody is going to preach on Matthew one and two f- to start mm-hmm. there, like what are some themes you would want that preacher to kind of hit on in, in that sermon? I'm sure there's a lot of different angles that can go. But. Yeah, right. I, I think so many times when people come to the Christmas story, they yawn rather than gape. We we think we know the Christmas story, but we don't really know the Christmas story. And uh, seeing the continuity between uh, the Old Testament, if you will, the Hebrew Bible and the stories and the, the, the Christmas story just helps give it. You mentioned high def earlier. It gives us just more depth um, to it, to see Jesus as this new Moses. Um, many of our people who have read and heard or seen the Passion Plays have never connected. Hey, Herod, the king of Israel, quote unquote, is become the new Pharaoh. Yeah. And so just that, that, that craziness um, that, that is there. And so seeing the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, um, I, I think we want to look at the Old Testament through the lenses of the New Testament and vice versa. And often we don't do that. And so uh, this is a way that maybe helps the audience see the Christmas story uh, afresh and, and in new eyes. Um, yeah. And so, so, yeah, I think that, that that's one example of if we're coming from Matthew. Yeah. I, I think it's if easier you're, if you're coming from Luke. Go ahead. Go, no, you go ahead. Go ahead. I, I, I'm just I, saying, if you're coming from Luke, we could also bring up the political um, aspects of that. Um, that it's not just a spiritual salvation that Christ is coming to give, but instead, um, it is subversive to an empire that's built on violence, um, that promises peace, but they back that peace up with a sword. You know, that um, promises uh, this utopia, but the truth is, is that. Um, it's a utopia built upon the backs of women and slaves. And uh, and so Jesus Christ came to uh, subvert and turn the world upside down again to bring in. And, and Luke's, Luke's famous, right, for emphasizing the marginalized. You have a lot of, you know, I, th- I think it's something like 50, 52% of Luke is repeated elsewhere. So you have about half of his material mm-hmm. is is unique to Luke. And a lot of that new material, the stuff that's only in Luke and nowhere else, 
a lot of those additions have to do with some story of the marginalized being included in in the kingdom. I remember mm. um, I uh, taught an ethics class at Cedarville. This must have been 15 years ago, and um, one of one of the exercises I had them do is read through Luke's gospel and 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 take note any time economics is mentioned, some kind of use of wealth, misuse mm. of wealth, taking care of the poor, not being able to give up wealth, just something that has some economic theme. And it's like, all, it's pretty much every chapter, sometimes multiple times in, in, in the chapters. And you have, you know, obviously women, Luke 8, 1 to 3, you have women that are funding Jesus's ministry. That's nowhere else. You have Mary and Martha. That's nowhere else. You mm-hmm. have the, the Good Samaritan. That's nowhere else. So this theme of this upside down kingdom that the very people that Rome used to build their empire, <laughs> Jesus is making them into an empire, an upside down kingdom that looks mm. nothing like the kingdoms of this world. So, um, yeah, man. you, you had, uh, LeBron James, I mean, uh, Craig Bomber, I mean, uh, Craig Keener on, <laughs> and, uh, he talked about Zachariah. Yeah. Uh, Brittany Wilson has a book, um, called, um, what is it? Um, unmanly men and Luke and Acts. And uh, she is going to emphasize that the very first thing that we see in Luke's gospel is the silencing of a man. Uh, and this is emasculating of a man. And it, it's a good, righteous man. It's Zechariah, right? And God shuts him up. And uh, at that point, as soon as he is quiet, uh, Elizabeth starts to speak. Yeah. And so Elizabeth becomes the, the first and primary theologian uh, to propagate uh, Luke's gospel. And so you have that contrast. And then... Uh, it's, it's funny. It's almost comical uh, what was made out of Zechariah because Mary comes to Zechariah's house and uh, Zechariah can't say anything. And so uh, Elizabeth and Mary have this conversation on and uh, Zechariah as a father during this time, the paternal responsibility was to be able to name the son. And he's even lost that. And the only time he finally gets his voice back is when he agrees with his wife. Um, and so <laughs> there, there we go. That's a good application point uh, right there. But um, yeah, so even the subversive from the very beginning of the, the the narrative story in Luke's gospel is exalting the voices of women. Zechariah does get his voice back, but it's only to complement what Luke, what Mary and uh, Elizabeth has already said. Yeah. And so you even see that aspect of not just political subversion, but also the subversion of g- gender power um, yeah. in Luke Acts. Social status, social roles, economics is all throughout that. Mm-hmm. Man, so much to chew on. Uh, Joey, thanks so much for unpacking so much. I feel like I should <laughs> divide this podcast in like five parts just so people can <laughs> chew on it because you gave him a fire hose, which uh, I, I, as I, in as much as I know my audience, I think they love this kind of stuff. So thanks so much, man. I appreciate you coming on. And, and I just love how you can explain these really complicated things super clearly and, and entertainingly. <laughs> Flavorful. <laughs> 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 All right, man. Well, I love you, dude. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for coming on.